stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Lydia Yuknovich, is the author of the novel Dora, a Head Case, the Oregon Book Award-winning memoir, The Chronology of Water, three works of short fiction, Her Other Mouths, Liberty's Excess, and the Oregon Book Award finalist, Real to Real, as well as a book of literary criticism, Allegories of Violence. Her work appears in the anthologies Life as We Show It, Forms at War, Wreckage of Reason and Representing Bisexualities, and she teaches writing, literature, film, and women's study here in Oregon. Lydia Yuknovich is here today on Between the Covers to talk about her latest novel, The Small Backs of Children, a novel that author and reviewer Porachista Kakpur describes as follows. You can make the case that Lydia Yuknovich is the most compelling writer alive. The Small Backs of Children has moments of seance with writers like Jean Rees and Clarice Lispector. I felt bewitched, possessed, destroyed, and yet I do it again. Welcome to Between the Covers, Lydia Yuknovich. My complete pleasure. So you start out the book, The Small the Small Backs of Children, on the opening page with two definitions of a muse. Um, and so one definition is that they're, they are the nine daughters of, of Zeus and Nemesis. Yes. Um, the nine goddesses that preside over the arts and sciences. And the other definition uh, is an imagined feminine, the force behind creative agency. Yes. So t- just to start out, what was the muse that animated you in writing the, the small backs of children? Ooh, that's a good question. I think... I understand the muse in my own life in a couple different ways. The first way is that I was a scholar of literature for quite a while, and the literary muse in the history of literature as a feminine figure that helps famous male writers is really well-documented, well-known, oft-mentioned, etc. And so I got a little trickster in me and started thinking about, well, what if she had her own voice and she was her own person? What does she have to say? Mm-hmm. So that's reason one that I was attracted to the muse idea. The second reason is that it's a little bit sad, but <laughs> I'm a person, like many people, who is haunted by a death in my family. My daughter died the day she was born. And I've learned over time that that sadness and presence doesn't ever go away. And so I was looking for ways to give it voice and expression, 
rather than continually having to push it down in my life and my emotions. Mm -hmm. And turns out that was a good idea. Mm. Turns out that that sort of imagined girl has a lot to say. And so that's the second way I come at the muse. Well, let me ask you about a third way that I, I wondered about. Yeah. Um, so in the book, the the different characters in the book are mainly women. Yes. And they're mainly w- women artists. Yes. And none of them have names, or we don't know their names. They're referred to by their, their pursuit of the art. So right. we have the writer, the photographer, the poet, the painter. Yes. And the muses themselves rule over certain domains of art. Yes. So... In in a way, are these characters also manifestations of the muses? Yes. Essentially? <laughs> <laughs> I love you. Yes. <laughs> they're yes, they're meant to play out as sort of manifestations of this idea, this concept of the feminine muse, and they're much more that than they are traditional characters. Mm-hmm. And there's no main character in the book. There are manifestations of emotional intensities and artistic practices. That's why they don't have names. And then even another way to look at it is psychologically. In some ways, all of the characters are inside maybe one psyche, even the men. Right. And that's another way to look at it. Well, I definitely had that feeling oh, because <laughs> because there's this sense that the writer character who has some details that feel like they parallel your contemporary life situation, it's an, it's easy to make the assumption that that, that is you. Mm-hmm. But then when I was doing research for, for this interview, and I see that at other points in interviews, you've said that the truest you is a painter, not a writer. Likely. And, and the, then I'm thinking, oh, well, the painter is you. And of course, you could think about the girl in the book um, being your daughter. Right. But it also felt like the girl could be you. Right. And I even, I addressed that idea early on in the story that there is a girl and that she's me or she's imagined or she's all of us or she stands for something for us. And I love that idea that we, we're connected by collective psyche energy, mm-hmm. not to sound woo-woo, but, well, I, it's okay if I sound woo-woo, woo-woo. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I really love to tap into that idea. And I don't think anybody's life is uh, moves beyond story. So the parts that are autobiographical, uh, I'm not that interested anymore in the difference between story and life. So I mixed it up. Yeah. And I think that it's I think that it's true in any book that all the characters yes. are the author yes. in some re- in some regard because they're representing the characters. Absolutely. But you've really foregrounded it. So we can't yeah. mistake that. Right. As, I turn the, the volume case. way up on that idea, but I agree with you. I think every novel ever written is the weird little trolls inside the psyche of the author. Right. Yes. Well, before we leave the idea of the muse, um you know, in the introduction, I mentioned Porchista's uh, great uh, review of the small backs of children, and she mentions Jean Reese and Clarice Lispector. Are there uh, feminine historical muses that you feel like connect in a specific way to this book? Absolutely. I think with this book in particular, if anybody's familiar with some of the later works of Virginia Woolf, I was pretty immersed in and haunted by books like Between the Acts and The Waves Mm. and different uh, experiments she did with character and voice and 
the sort of abandonment of traditional plot. I really like that idea. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps you notice. <laughs> and I think another writer who is just always in my DNA is maybe not as obvious. Um, Kathy Acker mm-hmm. is a constant muse for me the rest of my life. And I had the opportunity to know her and meet her. So she's literally in my skin. And even though stylistically, you can't exactly track the similarities. She's in the heart of the matter hmm. in every way. Another thing that I found really fascinating is, I, speaking of like silenced female voices, mm-hmm. I'd never heard of the goddess of memory, the the mother of the muses. So mm-hmm. I don't know if it's Nemesine or Nemesine, but it's it's a cool idea to think of the god of thunder and the god goddess of memory are so thunder and memory coming together to, yes. to make the muse. Um, and But if we think about this idea of memory and representation, it feels like it's an important part of the book. So I, I wanted to just, I know that the story of the book isn't all of what the book is, but, no. but, this, but this idea of representation is central to this enterprise, it seems to me. So we have this girl whose uh, picture was taken in a war zone in Eastern Europe. Not the, the location isn't identified, but the photographer takes this picture. Yes. But all of the people in the book are concerned with representation because they're artists. Absolutely. So just walk us through the, the, a brief sketch of, of the, the opening plot of this book and, and how the uh, photo is a central part of that plot. Yes. Well, the photo acts as kind of a nexus where all the characters sort of meet or are drawn in or ejected from story. And I've been fascinated with the effect representation has on us since I came conscious of language, probably somewhere in my 20s. And I became interested in linguistics and psychoanalysis and went all the way down that road (laughs) with what is representation I was very nerd central. Um, But we've hit a point in this zeitgeist we're living in now where something Jean Baudrillard said a long time ago seems to be happening, which is that our representations have overtaken our reality. Hmm. And whether that's true or not, that idea fascinates me. Hmm. And so, say, the famous war photos of girls in particular, and you and I could name some if we sat here. Vietnam War is one that comes to mind as one of the early girl photos of war that seemed to change things or turn things. The idea that representation could not only mirror reality, but possibly overtake it, I made a plot point in the book, so that war wrenches people out of their reality, but also photos and stories (laughs) wrench people out of their realities. And I'm not so sure we can easily name the difference anymore. And that's both a terrifying thought, but it's also this weird possibility space. And so I got just, as you can tell, obsessively interested in that idea. And if I'm in a room with anyone, I can drag some photos out and win the argument (laughs) that I'm trying to make right now. Uh, You know, challenge somebody to say, well, prove to me that this photo didn't come to stand for the entire experience of war. Or, you know, didn't open up and multiply meanings. And it's there's something weird about 
photography and film that I think a lot of people, if they're not thinking hard about it, may assume a, an objectivity with right. it, a lack of bias that they wouldn't with a painting. Wrong. Wrong. Right? right? <laughs> <laughs> because the eye of the camera is as subject to the rules of composition and creation as, you know, what's going on with the canvas and the I-E-Y-E of any person. Everything we look at and perceive and process, we're applying a bias to. We're making a story up in our heads when we look or experience anything. And so I just, sort of like you said, I turn the volume way up on that idea Mm. so that everybody's act of creation is amplified. But I actually think it's true about us in general. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to author Lydia Yuknovich about her latest book, The Small Backs of Children. This, your book, even though it is undermining narrative as it's delivering narrative, it also invites us to make uh, questions about your personal biography at the same time, as well as it sort of defies the ability to reduce anything to, to them. Would you um, be willing to share about your family history and how that how um, your family in Lithuania um, is has informed some of what you've explored? I'm willing to share a little bit. <laughs> and here's how it's easy to share it. I, My father's sister sent me a box of photographs at a certain point in my life, in my 40s. And first I didn't open the box because this is a person I have deep tensions with, and I just didn't even want to know what was in it. But you know, what writer can't open a box? So eventually I opened it and it was filled with the first photos I've ever seen of my paternal side of the family from Lithuania. And so that immediately interested me. Um, For one thing, they were the first photos I've ever seen in my life where people looked like me. Mm. I mean, I don't, Um, I'm sure lots of people have this feeling, but I don't see a lot of people who I visually identify with. Uh, And these people look like, you know, square jaws, beady blue eyes, light hair, big shoulders. They look like they could do labor. (laughs) And so that was sort of great and haunting. But I also, in the box, there was sort of redacted documentation of event that took place in our family history, which is my great uncle, who was a photographer, had taken a series of photos at, um, well, a massacre that happened in a little town called Penavesis in Lithuania. And he'd been captured by, at the time, Russian soldiers, and his photos were confiscated. And he was sent to a Siberian gulag for a long time. And so I got sort of, when I say redacted, I got Xerox copies of newspaper articles. And they had literally, you know, the big felt black lines in them or pieces cut out. And so I had pieces of story. And, you know, when you hand a writer a bunch of photos and pieces of story with a high drama in it, I was sunk I was completely seduced, and it sort of merged with, you know, the grief and loss I was experiencing when my daughter died. Those sort of made a weird braid. Hmm. And so that's what made me decide to bring family history and, you know, what is true, 
what happened and unravel it, unwrite it, and rewrite it into fiction. Well, let me ask you about that question about making it fiction. You've you've talked about the chronology of water being an anti-memoir. Yes. I would imagine you might consider The Small Backs of Children an anti-novel. In some ways, yes. I mean, although I think I have a lineage to some, an older form in European literary history, um, the novels that were coming around, out during the time of the French Nouveau Roman, like Marguerite de Ross, and kind of postmodernism, right after modernism. So I don't feel like I would break entirely from the novel, but I was definitely interested in seeing if I could unwrite the novel. <laughs> yeah. And break it back down into its movable parts and try, I don't know if this works, but try to reconnect it to the other arts and remind everyone that the novel doesn't exist without its relationship to the other arts. Mm. And even though it kind of shot up in supremacy in terms of storytelling until film dominated it, <laughs> I wanted to break down art making into its parts and loosen them back up like they're all sediments. Well, when, when you describe receiving this box from your family and that you're receiving history and fragments right. and some of it, it is is intentional fragment through redaction, and some of it's accidental fragment just through right. what you're able to recover. Um, that makes me think of the story that you you've told about when you first started writing and you were studying under Diana Abu Jaber, yes, and how you were writing fragmentary, always, um, and, and that it was such a crucial moment for her to place what you were doing in a tradition rather than to say you're doing something weird that needs to be corrected. Oh God, I will be thanking her the rest of my life. Do you know her? I don't. Oh, you have to have her on. You have to meet her. I would love to. I've, I've been, I will thank her the rest of my life because she helped me walk through the door from misfit and outcast to innovator. And no one had reflected that back to me. I'd only been sort of coached that I was doing it wrongly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, um, getting some of the points of the elements of fiction wrong. Um, but she she looked me right in the eye and and suggested that I was in a possibility space and that it was a place of creation and never underestimate the value that has on a person. And I was in a particularly broken part of my life at that point. And so it also stitched some story possibility back together. And I felt like I had arms and legs again. And um, I'm, I'm in debt to her the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I hope other people out there who are writing a little differently or making art a little differently putting things together from pieces, it's a thing. And particularly now, it's right. a very popular thing. It's, I can't believe this is happening in my lifetime, yeah. luckily. <laughs> um, but it's not a new thing. It's an old thing. Right. Uh, there are Greek dramas that are put together in a kind of strangely fragmented way. And so the idea that the fragment is, has a light shined on it again, it's good for all of us. Yeah, I think so too. So, Lydia, why don't we um, hear a little bit of the prose from, from The Small Backs of Children? It would be my pleasure. The Violence of Children When violence comes to the door of a child's house, it is not comprehensible to her. 
Even if she has some small awareness of the war or violence or dangers surrounding, the truth is that the faces and hands of the people in her family, the horses in the barn, the mouse she is secretly keeping as a pet, the potatoes frozen underground, the kickball made from animal skin and straw and twine, the glass in the windows and the shivering walls of the house are infinitely more real to her. She cannot help it. The sound of a mother's voice singing her to sleep, the alto of a father reading a poem, the smell of a brother's skin just before dreams, the moon's giant eye, all of these overshadow whatever violence is at the door. Think of Anne Frank writing about trees. You've been listening to Lydia Yuknovich read from The Small Backs of Children. I, I hope you're going to do your, your audio book. I don't think that I am. You're not. <laughs> I'd probably pass out if I tried to do There's a real, I, I, I'm noticing for the first time that there's a real musicality. Like what you read there, there was a, a certain, I don't know, poetic meter to That's to that nice section. of you to say. I hear voices, so <laughs> <laughs> I try to copy what I hear in my head. Yeah. Well, you met, this section that you just read the, uh, the about the violence of childhood, um, there's a quote in the book where you say, um, all the artists we admired came out of the mouths of wars and crises. We come out of high capitalism, consumerist motherhood. Do you feel like that that coming out of that, out of high capitalism and, and consumerist motherhood, it's a harder place for an artist? Um, I mean, obviously you wouldn't wish to be in a war no. or a crisis to write from, but um, it seems to be pointing at something, that quote. I think... I was more interested in trying to, you know, wrench open the question than providing some kind of good answer to it. I do think it's a little tricky that we in America have an image of ourselves uh, wherein we project war elsewhere, ever elsewhere. And even when planes came and crashed into Twin Towers in our city, we placed the war elsewhere. And I, I am interested in that idea. I think it's important. I think our strongest influence in the world has been our money, which is not to take away all the great things America has done for the world. I'm aware of those great things. Right. I am living here and raising my son here, but I think it's always important to remind ourselves that we are of our own making. We are making a world and projecting the hard parts away from ourselves because we can. If you wake up in Gaza, in the Gaza Strip, you don't get a choice. Every day of your life you wake up to violence and shellings. And we do have a choice. And I'd like to wrestle that idea a little bit. Um, it's pretty easy to go on social media and click like or send our money to help. But I'm, I'm wondering at 52 what else I can do hmm. to, be, to grab my own agency and be more active in the world. And I don't have some magical answer about that. But I do think we've gotten a little caught up in our in the zenith of consumerism. Yeah. <laughs> and even as artists, you know, why do we want to write books to be bestsellers? And is that good? Is that is that not so good? Do we want to write books that have a chance at 
social change? Is that even possible anymore? Those are questions I'm interested in, but right. I'd never say I have the answers. <laughs> but there's a whole... You hear all the time people who don't believe that art and politics mix. And yes. obviously that's not your position. I mean, the... No, it's not. I mean, you know, I can't compare myself to these amazing artists who've lived over time. But one of my favorite pieces of art is Picasso's Guernica. And that painting is a visual statement that is still capable of rupturing up and through most of the blather about the Kardashians. I mean, though there is art that exists that can still change people. Right. And so I'm not going to let go of that idea until I have to. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you a, a different question, a political question about, about feminism in relationship to this, the small, back of small backs of children. And you'd mentioned Virginia Woolf as a uh, influence, mm -hmm. as one of the uh, feminine... Uh, historical muses that may, may be looking down upon uh, upon this novel. But you also have the writer in this book quote Virginia Woolf at the beginning, uh, the state, the famous statement, women must have money and a room of her own to be able to make art. Yes. And the writer really uh, has a problem with this <laughs> statement. And I would love for you to to just talk about what, what problem the writer in the book has with this statement of this seminal statement of Virginia Woolf and and, and why. Well, it's, it's not that difficult to explain. It's an issue of class, and it's always a beef I've had with The Verge, <laughs> even as I love her work. You right. know, we're also at a place where we're not allowed to discuss the nuance of loving something and being angry with it at the same time, or you get blasted on Facebook or something. But um, it's an issue of class because so there have been times in my life where I've had zero money and to the point of homelessness, and there's no room, Virginia. <laughs> and be, it, when I was in a homeless position, that was a luxury compared to most people in the world who don't live here, who are never going to have anything close to what she's calling a room. So she was speaking from a place of, of pretty substantial privilege when she said that. Mm. A pretty white place, a pretty I have a husband who takes care of things place, and a place where her intellect had already been received, acknowledged, and respected. So I think it's okay to both point that out and kind of tug at it a little bit and say, for me, she is one of the top five greatest writers of all time. Right. And both things are true. Right, at the same time. Right. And you bring out a, another quote, or the writer in the book brings out another quote that she feels a stronger resonance to, or a couple. And, and the one that stood out to me was, someone has to die in order that the rest of us should value life more. And the, the presence of death seems really crucial to the enterprise of this book. And there seems to be... Um, a connection between art and death mm -hmm. in some fashion in this in this exploration. Yes. Can you can you speak to that? Yes. Well, representationally, I think the act of artistic creation is always in relationship with the edge of destruction. When you're painting and you take the concept and the process all the way to the edge of this chaotic thing where you could where you I would just say you could mess up the painting. 
or when you're in writing and you take the story a place you know isn't sensical and you know everybody might hate, but you do it anyway, that you're, you're in that line, you're in that liminal space between creation and destruction artistically. And that's where I think the deepest art forms live and you have to go get them. And it's risky and it's dangerous to your reputation. Maybe you're okay sitting there in your room <laughs> going there. You might drink too much wine or something. But it's dangerous, you know, process-wise to right. maybe lose the thread or something. But you could find you could find the great discovery for yourself. But there's also a literal answer to that question. And is when my daughter died, I held death and life in the same moment in my arms. And since I have that experience, I feel kind of lucky because that forever changed my understanding of life and death, which no longer seem like a straight line to me, hmm. that they're always happening on top of each other or in relation to each other. And that's when I started thinking about life and death as more creation, destruction, energy, and less as the beginning and the end I guess I let go of linear time. Is that what you mean by the title of your memoir, The Chronology yes, of Water? Yes, that's what I mean. And that's partly where I learned it. I learned it artistically, like process-wise, writing that book, and I healed something in myself. Hmm. Well, let me ask you about the title of, of your newest book, because in The Chronology of Water, you use the words, the small backs of words. Yes, and you caught that. <laughs> and in this one, we have the small backs of children. Yes. What does that mean? I think I'm interested in the idea that tiny and small things in our lives carry monumental meaning. In terms of language, I'm a believer that words are not stable and language is not stable or fixed. And for, the, for me, that means we can rearrange it and change meaning anytime we want. We don't, and I'm not sure why we don't, because if it's possible, perhaps we should. <laughs> um, but I believe that. And uh, children, children, from my point of view, oh, I hope I don't start crying saying this. The children in our world right now are carrying the weight of our decisions and actions. And I, uh, I almost can't bear that. I almost can't stick around mm. because of that. And so I'm, I'm ever interested in trying to figure out how we can turn the volume up on that idea uh, because it's one thing to make choices in our lives and in our governments and in our nations that make a geopolitics. And it's another thing to sit around and say it's okay what we've done to our children and that they have to endure the effects of what we've done. And I don't want to turn away from that. I don't want to shield my eyes from that. I don't want to turn the TV off. I want to not flinch and keep trying to write stories that ask, can we be better? Can we do it differently? Well, it seems key to me that you use the word backs in the title. And, and you talk a lot about writing the body mm -hmm. and about this idea of corporeal writing. Yeah. Um, Tell us what you mean by that, and, and in relationship specifically to the small backs of, of children. Right. I think my entire writing enterprise at this point stems from a belief I have that 
your physical body, and I'm looking at yours right now because I mean everybody's, actually gives us the possibility of generating new meanings from the meanings we inherit as we live through society. I think that the body is a giant metaphor for all experience, and I think these sentences I'm saying aren't as abstract as they sound if you think of a writer like Walt Whitman. His Leaves of Grass is sort of a, a, an anthem to the possibility of the body teaching us things about how to live and love and die and be in relation to each other. And when I decided that was part of my belief system <laughs> artistically, that made me want to explore, well, okay, if that's true, what has to happen to language to reflect that? And so that's the answer to why do my stories look weird on the page? I'm exploring what the body might have to say that we haven't gotten a good ear for. And weirdly, paradoxically, by changing the form on the page, you're you're uh, revealing the body of language. Yes. Because we're now noticing the text yes. as a physical thing. Right. And so the backs of words and the backs of children and your back while you're reading it, right. I'm actually, a, believe it or not, this probably sounds insane, but I'm actually trying to get you to experience physicality differently. When somebody tells me they cried or they gasped or they held their breath or they could feel their abdomen differently, that's a success for me. Right. That, that's what I'm aiming for. That's to get us to be in our bodies differently in relationship to storytelling. Well, let me let me uh, transition from the body to sex. Ah. And <laughs> the Atlantic once asked the question, why is it so hard for women to write about sex? And they mentioned you as an example, I think, of someone who did it well. Tell us about writing, what considerations you might have when writing sex, given how easy it seems to be to write it poorly. Right. I... Boy, I could talk a long time about this, but I won't because I have a short answer, which is that I am baffled by the horrible phenomenon of what is called the sex scene, as if there is a particular beginning, middle, end, discrete unit we can point to and say, that's where it happened. Okay, beginning, middle, end, done. Bodies doing their thing. When... For me, it is true that your sexuality becomes part of everything in your life the day you're born. And it is woven into everything you do in life until you go to dirt, possibly beyond. Who knows? <laughs> I don't know. I do know that it is my aim to keep sexuality omnipresent in language and action in the characters because that's how it feels to me in life. And so that's the short answer that I'm trying to remind everybody. It's not me that figured this out. It's just true that our sexuality is present in every moment of our lives. And it's sort of nice to read it contained in a scene in a novel, but it's also so limiting and reductive of the actual experience that I can't live with that. Hmm. That's really fascinating. <laughs> In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to author Lydia Yuknovich about her latest book, The Small Backs of Children. 
you you interviewed Kate Sembreno about her book Heroines at one point, and you asked her a question that I would love to just turn around and ask you. So here it is. You may it may sound familiar to you. <laughs> what is at stake in the creation of voice, body, story for women writers now? And is it necessary to read the voices that came before, to relocate and even dislocate the women writers of the past in order to forge a language of experience and design a space for new women's stories to exist? That's so mean that I asked her that question. <laughs> That's such a complex question. Well, you just pick part of it. But I know <laughs> no, it's probably I'm... it's probably done writing, uh, writing back and forth it rather was. than live. It too. was. But <laughs> no, I mean, you can sort of hear the desperate yearning in my question. Mm. You can You can feel that... I really am woefully attached to those kinds of questions. And I, my answer to that question is that we're standing on the bones of the women writers who came before us. And if we're not, if we don't have some form of allegiance or um, compassion for that, we're not exploring our own writing as deeply as we could. And they have shown us the possibilities. And when we turn from that to try to fit in with the culture better, I think a violence happens. I think innovation for women's writing ought to be the goal. I wish every women writer felt that way. I think people of color and LGBT writers are on the cutting edge of what's going to be possible in writing and artistic production in the future. And I think the only way fully forward in terms of risky innovations is to admit that admit and revel in the fact that we're haunted by those who came before us. Mm. And we have a responsibility to keep their voices alive. And in this novel that I just wrote, and probably everything I've ever written, Keeping the voices of life of those who saved my life is part of my responsibility to sort of art as a practice. And part of what Heroines does, which I think you're also doing, is a reclamation yes. project of silence voices. Yes. And so <laughs> it's funny because we act like women's voices were silenced in the past and it's all hunky-dory now. But this is not the case. <laughs> there are different forms of silencing, and they've been become trickier and more di displaced. And that just makes me want to rattle the cage even harder, because when they become trickier and more displaced, it's sort of like war and violence. It's harder to point at it and say, ooh, this is something to look at. So that silencing of women, and it's not just women. Men get, male writers and artists get silence as well. It just wasn't my focus in this story. Um, but silencing in any form is a form of colonization. And even though the past is something that supposedly isn't here anymore, it doesn't mean we can't have a relationship with it and keep unearthing it and bringing it with us, the pieces that mattered. I wanted to ask you about a couple projects, one that you've completed and, and a couple that I've heard that you're working on that seem related to this. And that's when you wrote Dora Headcase, that's that's a project where you 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 take a famous case of Freud's 
and you give voice to the to the woman who is is reduced by his analysis. Yes. Um, and I've heard that you're doing a similar project with Joan of Arc and with Mary Shelley. Correct. Are those still happening? They are still happening. Um, I have to say before I answer that, that Dora is the most fun book I've ever written in my life. And she absolutely came to me in a dream and woke my butt up and yelled at me. Mm. <laughs> That's how she came to be. But um, it was a three-idea dream. Um, the three books are a trio to me, the Dora book and the Mary Shelley book and the Joan of Arc book, with a similar motif that you've already talked about, which is going back and looking at those women whose voices either were taken away from them or who we were delivered a story about them, but I remain suspicious about it. Yeah. Um, and so the Joan of Arc book is actually the next novel I have coming out with Harper. Mm. And it may be about a year from now. And the Mary Shelley book, I'm still inside it writing and writing and rewriting because she had some famous men she hung out with and it's really hard not to continually write the story back into Keats and Shelley and Byron. Right. It's like they're in the room and they won't be quiet. Well, speaking of, of being quiet and, and you're, you're talking about silence and colonization, have you read the essay by Ann Carson, Variations on the Right to be Silent? Hundreds I think that's of, what it's called. Hundreds of times. The one about Joan of Arc yes. and the translation. Yes. It's pinned to my wall in my office. It's so amazing. It's so beautiful and inspirational. And so there's a writer writing right now who I consider, she's opened up an entire field for us. She's plowed it. It's fertile. We're ready to go. And it's, you know, I think of these women as, as, you know, plowing fields or macheting through a jungle. And if we just stand there and stare at it, I think we're idiots. <laughs> but that's one of the essays that it just, you read it and it makes you want to go do something. Yeah. Well, I want to I speak about the, the translation of art into action, because I feel like one of the enterprises of the small backs of children, as you've said, is you're not, it's... It's got your personal biography in it, but it feels like it's more concerned about connecting biographies yes. than it is about biography. Yes. And so you also seem like a pretty noteworthy literary citizen, like you're a champion of other contemporary writers. That seems to be this concern around, like, I have this biography, this is what I'm working on, but it's about the that connective tissue between biographies. Yes. Can, can you speak more about being a literary citizen? Like... You read Anne Carson, it makes you want to act, but you also just seem to naturally be about um, acting, not just writing. Well, I'm from the bottom of my heart, which is a really curious phrase. I've never understood what that meant, the bottom. What does that mean? <laughs> the with, heart of your heart. Yeah. Oh, with my whole body, I believe all we have is each other. And one of the dangers of this high capitalist moment, I'm always shouting about is that you'll get a sense of self that's so driven by a solitude and individualism and an ego that you lose the ability to understand that the web is the thing, that all we have is each other, that we have to stay connected or there isn't anything. And so when I write something and I make a teeny bit of progress, the first thing I think isn't, 
yay me, I'm great, I'm going to be rich and famous, the first thing I think is jam your foot in the door so that somebody can get in and get as many of them in as possible before somebody notices. Because my life's work depends upon relational values, not hierarchical values. I'm, I'm not trying to climb up. I'm trying to get more crowds through the door. And if we'd make that parallel with the actual materiality of the text, yes. it makes sense that you'd be doing juxtaposition and collage. Doesn't and, it? And yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes, because it sort of like decolonizes narrative too and points back to, well, we're making it sound like I did this amazing, I've just, you know, fiddled around with words on a page, but you're asking me about the things I care about most in my life. Right. And I would stop writing if it meant I would be cut off from other people who are trying to write too. I would stop tomorrow. And what about you as a teacher? Tell, tell me, tell me a little bit about your approach or philosophy when you're when you're getting a new group of students and what you're trying to achieve in a classroom well I, it's always a little risky to talk about it because i'm convinced i'll be fired <laughs> <laughs> well don't say anything you don't want to of course no i, I mean you know at this point it'd be okay <laughs> i'm really tired but every time I walk into a, a, let's say, a new classroom anywhere, and that can be also in crisis centers and rehab centers and jails and, you know, odd institutions, my goal is to help people understand something that's already true, which is they already have a relationship to language and story. And my other goal is to help them walk out of the room with a sense of self-esteem that is connected to self-expression. And if I can do those two things, I really don't give a crap what the grade is or if they met some bizarre outcomes list, which we're being told more and more, in case you don't know this, to teach to outcome lists and retention data. Even in a writing class. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In fact, writing classes are continually threatened with execution because mm. they don't fit a business model of education. And so there's always a fight to keep them alive, mm. which is absurd to me because without self-expression in the liberal arts, we're not even human. So you could put that on the air. That's, that's a big one for me. But I think that for me, teaching is about helping people feel less broken and less silenced and less discounted and giving them a sense of self-worth because expression can give you that. Hmm. And I don't know how far they'll, anyone who comes to my classroom will get in life, but I do know I'm not satisfied. I'm not done until I can see in their eyes that they feel like they have a self and they have something to say. And that's enough. Do you have certain books that you like to point people towards or conversely do you have do you have books right now that you're just really excited about and and sharing with other people I very much got excited and still am excited about the book Citizen 
Mm-hmm. I think it's the right book at the right time by the right author doing the right things with language in fragments, I'll add. That's right. <laughs> it's the Lyric right, essay in fragments. right mode. So I've been, I've been putting that in as many hands as I can. I think Rebecca Solnit is doing amazing work right now. Maggie Nelson is mm-hmm. doing amazing work right now. But I could give you a list of like 300 authors. And here's the thing. Some of them would be people you've never heard of because they're not published yet. And yet I see that they're doing the hard work of digging the trenches for the rest of us, for all of us. And to me, an unknown student who hasn't published a thing is as amazing as some high-powered author who's on the lecture circuit, because we're all doing the same labor. And the day I forget that is the day we should just, you know, put me out in the garden. Um, Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, so I would champion people you haven't heard of yet, like Melanie Aldrit. She's coming for you. She's going to get you. <laughs> we'll watch out for her. Melanie, I'm embarrassing you publicly if this makes it on air. <laughs> She's coming for you. Well, it was great having you on Between the Covers today. And uh, congratulations on the launch of the Small Backs of Children. Thank you so much. It's been really fun to talk to you. We've been talking today to author Lydia Yuknovich, the author of The Small Backs of Children. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host.